I'm Emily Jashinsky. I'm Ben Weingarten. I'm Inez Stepman. And I'm Josh Hammer. And this is NatCon Squad, where common good and common sense meet. NatCon Squad is produced by the Edmund Burke Foundation, the home for national conservatism. Subscribe now on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today, we're going to start by uh, Ben taking us through a little bit about new Hunter Biden storylines. He's now suing the IRS. It's going to be good. So just... Be ready because Ben is going to take us through some of the details of that. Josh is going to go through the entire uh, saga as it relates to Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton, which is so fascinating and has so many layers, and I'm very excited to unpack. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about Yoel Roth, who you may remember was the safety head of Twitter. He had some weird Orwellian title over at Twitter, um, but he's out with a new op-ed in the New York Times uh, that is saying democracy is bad for democracy basically he's upset about congressional hearings and is saying it's all a, a targeted attack a strategic vast right-wing conspiracy uh, against the tech oligarchs who are just doing their darndest to keep us safe every day so we'll talk a little bit about that and Inez is going to talk about the inert the resurgence of me too and russell brand so on that we're going to toss it to ben first uh, to talk to us about hunter biden well, thanks, Emily. And last week, as per usual, uh, there was another development in the Hunter Biden case, which coincided with developments in the Joe Biden impeachment case, namely the opening of an impeachment inquiry into Joe Biden. Uh, and just several days after that, special now special counsel David Weiss in Delaware handed down an indictment, which the DOJ had telegraphed. Uh, slapping Hunter Biden with a three-count indictment dealing with gun-related charges, namely false statements that he put on paperwork to purchase a, a gun about not using drugs or being addicted to illegal drugs, as well as possessing a firearm while a user of or an, or an addict, uh, in this case, in Hunter Biden's case of cocaine. These are long-known offenses, yet, of course, he's only being indicted with them today. And perhaps most notably of all, these are the offenses that are most untethered from the Biden multimillion dollar international influence peddling scheme, which is the whole basis in reality, or should be, for the investigation and prosecution of Hunter Biden. Now, context here is important. It's not clear that these charges would have ever even seen the light of day had a few developments not happened before this. Namely, IRS whistleblowers coming to the fore this spring to allege brazen misconduct by the DOJ, as well as some investigators in connection with this case in essentially stymieing and subverting not only the investigation and prosecution of Hunter Biden, but also obfuscating and sabotaging the pursuit of any leads to Joe Biden. We know that there have never been offenses put forth uh, in an information or an indictment around foreign agent registration act violations, money laundering, et cetera. Any of the more serious charges, again, with a direct nexus to Joe Biden by dint of the fact the Biden family international influence peddling scheme would never have existed without Joe Biden having served for decades in the swamp. By the way, as the Senate Foreign Relations Committee chairman before he was vice president, before he was president. Uh, and so what are we to make of these charges that ultimately arose 
only after, again, the whistleblowers came to the fore, the DOJ felt compelled to rush to prosecute on some kind of grounds. They cooked up a sweetheart plea agreement, which then which had a pretrial diversion agreement in it around these gun charges, enabling Hunter Biden to skirt jail time and get a global immunity, get out of jail free provision. And only when that collapsed, did it ultimately lead to Weiss becoming a special counsel and the issuance of these charges? Well, in my view, this is a total and complete head fake. The reason you charge him on the least Joe Biden related crimes is because you feel you have to to save face as an institution. It's not clear necessarily how any kind of litigation is going to play out. Hunter Biden's counsel, by the way, maintains or has maintained previously that that pretrial diversion agreement with the get out of jail free card in it is actually active. So there's going to be litigation over that. Some have speculated that one of the reasons that the charges might have been brought against Hunter Biden is to prevent him from having to testify uh, before Congress, perhaps in connection with the impeachment inquiry. And then beyond that, you know, obviously this raises questions about, well, would Joe Biden, for example, pardon? Is this part of some kind of deep state plot to get Joe to step aside, et cetera? But I think the most important thing that I keep going back to is this is part of the continued cover up of the Joe Biden led Joe Biden chairman international influence peddling scheme because it hides the most Joe Biden related crimes. And we're still waiting on the purported tax, quote unquote, tax charges, which only derived from that international influence peddling operation, let alone any Farah or other charges to be brought. Where's the beef should be the question to special counsel Weiss. But of course, under his prosecution, they have already, prosecutors have already let the statutes of limitation lapse on the Burisma-related tax crimes at a very minimum. So, of course, the cover-up has already been effective to this point. So with all that laid out, you know, the questions that I had to ask are, do you all see this as the kind of head fake that I see it as? And to what extent, if any, does this impact the impeachment inquiry and the trajectory of the 2024 race more broadly? I also think one interesting thing is, they are using it's possible they're strategically using charges that will relate directly back to hunter biden's addiction um as a way for joe biden to only talk about the addiction and i'm not saying anybody's sitting in some smoke-filled back room like saying okay uh let's have weiss charge him only with this thing because it'll be better for pr uh, i'm just saying it's obviously better for pr to anybody who's sympathetic to biden and is involved in bringing charges or uh the litigation here that hunter biden's addiction issues with the gun in particular it's just much easier for joe biden to say this is my son who's been suffering. We've seen the the White House roll out that argument actually more in recent days, which which tells me that there's obvious truth to uh, the fact that it's just a much it, these are much easier for the White House to talk about than these really uh, deep, concerted foreign lobbying efforts. And FARA violations are a felony. Uh, the, they locked Paul Manafort up uh, for some some really egregious FARA violations. They didn't, of course, lock Tony Podesta up, but that it, it is a felony not to disclose when you are lobbying on behalf of foreign governments. Uh, so if he ends up never getting charged with FARA, which seems to be the trajectory that we're going down right now, um, and there are ways to just sort of do, you know, band-aids and to, you know, there are ways to charge someone with Farah and not ever put them in prison, which again, there's Paul Manafort and there's Tony Podesta. See what the difference is between the two of those uh, when it comes to the narrow question of Farah. If he never gets charged with a 
FARA violation and it it's never treated seriously, I won't be surprised, but the level of foreign lobbying that he was doing, the scale of his influence peddling was vast, to say the least. So that would be really pathetic. Yeah, I mean, look, I agree with both Emily and Ben that these are obviously the charges that are the furthest away from what the actual heart of the matter is, uh, which is what Hunter Biden was being paid for, right? And I, I'm honestly a little bit just fed up with the idea that we're supposed to continue to hedge our language. Um, there really are only two options here. One is that Hunter was selling Joe Biden's influence, which it seems it's impossible to even imagine selling that influence without the at least the knowledge of Joe Biden. Um, two, we have to imagine that foreign oligarchs are willing to spend millions and millions of dollars without actually getting anything over anything in return over the course of years. They're just that stupid um, that they're willing to repeatedly spend huge sums of money uh, to pay for influence that doesn't exist. And that just, it seems so um, like incredulous that I'm a little bit tired with all the hedging here um, in terms of saying, oh, we don't have enough information. Just from the information that is in the public, right, um, we know that those are the two options. And I don't know about you guys, but I think it's very implausible that powerful oligarchs around the world spend their millions like water without actually following through and making sure that they're getting anything for those millions. I mean, that is really what the press is asking us to believe is the, um, you know, including some some mainstream Republicans or moderate Republicans are sort of asking us to maintain this uh, extremely skeptical and fair-minded posture when those are the two options. And I feel like, you know, yes, obviously it's good to get, you know, if we're talking about crimes, obviously there needs to be, it's innocent until proven guilty. But in, in the case of public opinion um, and, and how we evaluate the president um, and for political remedies, I think that defensive crouches at this point unnecessary um just what's what's in the public sphere um i think is adds up to more than enough uh to first of all for impeachment to actually begin um and, and second of all for republicans to start talking about the fact that that joe biden is obviously corrupt without this defensive posture of oh we need more evidence so there's a lot to unpack here i mean we, we've already unpacked a lot of it i'll try to be as brief as possible so first of all i mean the sheer duration of time from this 180 degree turn from this pretrial diversion agreement that was then rejected from the, by the judge to then indicting on numerous gun offenses is really just shocking. I mean, if you by the crow flying, looking at a calendar, it's roughly six weeks or so. So something is, excuse me, something is obviously up here. Now, I think like the, the, the superficial explanation, which I saw a lot of people gravitate to, is that, oh, Weiss got his hands caught in the cookie jar and all of that. He's trying to make amends to it. But as Ben pointed out, these are crimes that are furthest removed from the very conduct for which Speaker McCarthy has now opened an impeachment inquiry. This is obviously nothing whatsoever to do with the big guy. So where my mind kind of first went when this news dropped last week was, you know, maybe kind of the, the Biden crime family in classic kind of Don Corleone fashion kind of, you know, called the the addle-brained prodigal son and was like, all right, you know, take one for the team here. But then you kind of have to say, well, is he actually going to take one for the team here? Because he's not going to jail. I mean, yes, like, like the, I mean, these criminal accounts add up to potentially 25 years in the slammer. And 
if his name were not Biden, he would 100% end up in jail time. These crimes are clear as day. I mean, the moron that he is, Hunter Biden literally admitted in his memoir that he was a crack addict at the time in 2018 that he purchased this Colt revolver. I mean, this is about as straightforward a prosecution as it possibly gets. Prosecutorial discretion, excuse me, doesn't get you that far when you already have a special counsel in the first place. By the way, a special counsel who was in a sitting U.S. attorney in direct violation of the Code of Federal Regulations, but that's a whole other issue for another day. So at the end of the day here, um, my column on this, what I concluded was we will. this is like going to be the regime exposing itself here. If the investigation stops here, if it stops here, if there's no investigation into the foreign business dealings, no investigation into Farah, none of these much, frankly, more potentially damaging and offensive to the body politic charges, if they stop here, and ultimately if he doesn't go to jail, then you know everything that conservatives have basically said about the two-tier system of justice, I think, um, basically will be vindicated. Really quick on a final thought here. Another thought that I had when this dropped last week is because we everyone watching, listening to this podcast knows Hunter's not going to jail. So one way that this plays out is Biden pardons his son as an excuse to and then the optics are so bad to kind of satisfy the the yearnings of the times and the post and everything, and then kind of not run for re-election. I don't know, just putting it out there as possible food for thought. All right, let's transition though for the sake of time. So there was other big news over over this uh, th these past few days, over this past weekend down in my former state of Texas, Attorney General Ken Paxton was acquitted of all 16 charges that the House overwhelmingly impeached him for. The vote there in the House was really shocking. Um, the Speaker of the House, who is a, a a moderate Republican, I guess would would be a polite way of saying it, really kind of corralled much of his caucus to join Democrats to to impeach Ken Paxton on 16 counts by, again, a shockingly, shockingly high margin there. When I saw that tally kind of come across the feed, my eyes kind of just bulged. And after a prolonged trial, he has now been acquitted, so he is back to being the active attorney general. He has been suspended from his duties now, going back three and a half, almost four months or so since late May. So we don't have the time to go into kind of the the full history of, of Ken Paxton's various kind of legal legal issues. I, I, I'm very close to the Paxton situation. I mean, not that I, I, I do know Attorney General Paxton a little bit, but I've had, um, I'm barred in Texas. I've had so many friends who have worked very closely for him. And that closeness kind of colors the way that I view all of this. So again, Paxton has been, has had a, a a legally checkered past. He's he was first indicted for securities fraud going back to 2015. He is still has an upcoming trial for securities fraud. That that situation has never been settled. Earlier this year, Joe Biden's DOJ announced they were going to open a federal probe into possible public integrity. But the actual allegations here that he was ultimately acqu acquitted by by the Senate pertain to just basically straight up venality and corruption, specifically pertaining to a prominent pro-Paxton donor by the name of Nate Paul, who's a real estate developer. The allegation is essentially some sort of quid pro quo arrangement where in exchange, uh, either explicit or implicit in exchange for a, I think it was $25,000 donation from Paul to Paxton's 2018 campaign, Paxton would redirect state funds to help his various legal issues, try to quash prosecutions into Nate Paul's private sector dealings. Uh, incidentally, through Nate Paul, Ken Paxton met a woman with whom he had an extramarital affair that he ultimately um, admitted to to make this story even more dramatic. Of course, Ken Paxton's wife, who stayed with him, Angela Paxton, is a current state senator who helped lead the charge in his defense. Um, so uh, it's kind of like a, you know, it's really kind of a, a Texas-sized drama. 
Uh, Ken Paxton is a controversial figure, and I'll be curious for all of your thoughts on him. I, I ultimately come down on the side that I like him and support him because he is he, he is a warrior. I mean, I mean, he files more lawsuits against the Biden administration than really kind of the other that all the other Republican attorneys general combined. If I had to guess, I don't have a statistic off the top of my head for that, but I bet if you looked it up, it probably is true. Not all of them are meritorious. Some of them are admittedly meritless. Um, his, his his attempt in, in kind of December 2020, um, around the time of the post-2020 election um, litigation back and forth, he filed this kind of Hail Mary lawsuit that I think only one justice would have been able to kind of hear. It, it was a bit of a Hail Mary. So sometimes he tends to overstretch here, but he is, is definitely a warrior against the Biden administration and against the substantive forces of progressivism and liberalism. However, I can tell you, again, going back to my own experience and my, my own familiarity with the relevant actors in the Texas legal system, because of all of his drama, he he has really bled talent, and he now has a huge problem with recruiting top-tier lawyers. So I really cannot exaggerate enough the importance of the Texas Attorney's General's Office, the Texas Solicitor General's Office, and their, their division of special litigation. I cannot emphasize enough how important that whole office is as far as kind of the red state's legal battles with Democratic administrations. Texas has been leading those battles really for 20 years, ever since Ted Cruz was Texas Solicitor General from 2003 to, to 2008. Other states have started to kind of pick up the steam here. But basically, the entire special litigation division in the Texas AG's office over the past few months has left. That, that division is essentially non-existent here. And I think that there were very legitimate questions going forward as to what that office will look like while Ken Paxton, despite his prolific nature, is going to be so wounded as far as recruiting. Will he be able to keep on filing lawsuits? Another question for you guys, I guess, and I'll throw it open on this. Another question is, you know, what about the fact that he, that, that, that he's an open adulterer? Do, I mean, do we even care about that anymore? There's also, I mean, Christy Nome also this past week, we saw the Daily Mail. I mean, people are defending that. So that's a whole nother conversation as well here. So there's really a lot to unpack here. Again, I, I I generally defend Ken Paxton because I think that that he is a warrior against the left, but I see the man for the flawed and somewhat tragic figure that he is. So I'm curious for everyone's thoughts on that. I really don't know much about this case and, and about the Texas uh, situation and, and all of the dynamics that Josh just laid out. So um, I'll leave that in my comments, but to to speak to the last bit of what you said about, let's say, moral standards in the Republican Party, um, I think it's notable that uh, worth remembering that Trump was the first Republican nominee who did not have to have a come to Jesus moment about his sexual past. Right. So it's not that the Republican Party has not had figureheads and nominees um, for all kinds of positions who were former adulterers, divorced, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but all of those people, including, for example, someone like Newt Gingrich, all had to sort of fall on their swords before the voters and and profess that they were living a different life uh, now than when those incidents occurred um, in order to get forgiven by Republican voters. Um, I think since 2016, this is essentially not true. Uh, that Republican voters do not care about the personal lives of their nominees. Um, I think this is sort of inevitable, uh, given the way that the left wields hypocrisy as a very, very potent political weapon, uh, not against the people falling short of the standards, but against this, any kind of moral standard itself, right? You can think of hypocrisy as a double-edged weapon against 
Like you could either wield the charge of hypocrisy against the behavior that falls short of the standard and and use hypocrisy to like the hypocrisy charge to call out that behavior, or you could use the hypocrisy charge to wield against the moral standard itself in this case to say, well, yeah, well then don't go around preaching about marriage if if you fall in short of that yourself. And I think the left, I think that's the wrong way to think about hypocrisy. Um but I, I think the left has gotten so much mileage since the 90s out of uh, the charge of hypocrisy against Republicans on sexual matters uh, that that Republican base is basically fed up and, and doesn't care. Now, do I think that's a good thing? It's hard to say. I mean, I, I think there there are definitely it's, it's definitely indicative of, of sort of a continual uh, erosion of moral standards. Um, and to that extent, I think it's, it's a bad thing. But in the, the current sort of fight with the left. If Republicans are the only people uh, who care about those standards, uh, it, it has been wielded really, really aggressively and successfully against the right. So I can I can understand why people are just sort of throwing up their hands and saying, well, we don't care. We just want someone who's going to fight for us. I think with Ken Paxton, there's this, um, uh, he, he was modeling in the early days of the Trump era, uh, the kind of activist, creative attorney general um, position that a lot of other people have sort of followed in the footsteps of in those years to Inez's point that if somebody is kind of demonstrating their, uh, you know, a fighter, so to speak, which is, I think it's fair to say, and, you know, Josh would know more about this, but I, I think it's fair to say that he, he took that position um, and made it something that a lot of people don't, uh, that a lot of people just sort of rest more comfortably on their laurels and aren't looking for creative activist ways um, to really strike at uh, a corrupt administration or the left in general. And a lot of Republican voters at this point have said, uh, no matter what the sort of internal party politics are, and no matter what the left is trying to wield, and we'll probably talk about this in an ESA segment too, uh, against this person, I value their uh, I value their ability to undercut uh, the forces of corruption, the forces of evil, uh, forces of immorality way more than I need them to be sort of a moral standard bearer. Um, and the other thing I was thinking of with this whole case, which is like super complicated, is that one party states, um, you know, a place like Texas, where you have one party rule for a really long time, or California, um, man, that is a tough position to be in. I saw it in my own home state of Wisconsin when Republicans dominated over the course of like the last decade. You have to be really, really, really careful when you're in that situation um, because it just breeds internal dynamics like this as people are jockeying for power within their own within their own party, and that gets you so far afield from what voters actually care about. Yeah, so I, I won't comment on the merits of the impeachment case to the extent there was a case. I saw the highlights that probably a lot of you saw exposing this to be a frivolous exercise. Um, I've heard and read some about how this is sort of this calls to mind kind of like the the Bushies versus the conservative uh, dynamic that certainly exists within Texas as well. And I'm sure that's a big part of it. And as, as I always go back to, uh, you know, the establishment Republicans fight no one harder than they do conservatives. And this may be an instance of that as well, but I'm sure there's much more as well to it. I also think it's worth noting that this also comes up against the backdrop of 
and not just obviously the political indictments happening right now, but also particularly the effort to disbar John Eastman in California, which is ongoing. And the reason I linked these two is not because the conduct is by any way necessarily uh, analogous or equivalent, and I'm not making any comparison between Eastman and Paxton, but this is one. This once again shows you how these institutions are being weaponized against figures who do take on the regime in one way or another. In Paxton's, Paxton's case, of course, he headlined maybe the preeminent suit around the 2020 election and tried to take it before the Supreme Court, uh, something that Eastman, of course, did support and effort he supported. Uh, so no good deed goes unanswered if you're taking on the regime in any way. You are going to have the regime left or right come down on your head. And so I do think this is another instance of that. You know, we've kind of not to beat a dead horse on the character and morals issue, but I think all of us would love to live in a society where our political representatives were paragons of virtue, were noble, did practice what they preached, etc. I think you have to weigh that now against the issue of knowing what time it is and are you willing to tolerate sometimes very flawed leaders in their personal lives who lack uh, personal virtue and morality in context of the greater good of fighting against those forces that Emily was describing. And I think it's very clear that most Republican voters are saying we are willing to tolerate people who do not necessarily represent what we hold dear in their own lives because this is what time it is. And, and I think this is probably one instance of that. Yes, sorry, super, super quick, and then we got to go to Emily. But um, I, I just want to clarify that it's important to note that one argument that the Paxton team made in their defense, which I actually found very persuasive, was that the voters already voted on this. Most of these Nepal allegations were out there by the time Ken Paxton beat George P. Bush, Jeb's son, by like 37 points in the Texas Republican AG primary last year. So that's I, I found that argument quite persuasive, actually. So the, the next segment here is on Yoel Roth, who's the former head of trust and safety. I think it was his actual like formal title um, at Twitter, old Twitter uh, versus new Twitter. So I guess that would be BE before Elon, the BE era. Uh, Yoel Roth was the head of trust and safety, which he's then implicated in all kinds of uh, nefarious decisions. We see it, you know, in his email um, at times, you know, he's weighing, uh, these are emails that came out in the Twitter file and they're emails that have come out in lawsuits and other things like that. We have a, a just a, a glut of information uh, from inside Twitter during those days, uh, A, because of Elon Musk taking it over and B, because there have been lawsuits and all that stuff involved. Uh, but we have a glut of information showing that he was in constant communication with the government, meeting regularly with intelligence agencies, was a part of the decision to uh, throttle the Hunter Biden laptop story. And while it's true, he was at sometimes weighing the value of speech over uh, political correctness, whatever it is, in the aggregate, he was a censor, essentially a censor. Um, and and one that was sort of being controlled by the shadow government, not the not not even like uh, democratically, but by intelligence agencies run by people who are not elected whatsoever, uh, who are pressuring him to do different things. And he was basically fully on board with it for the most part. He wrote an op-ed in the New York Times this week that has to be read to be believed. I'm going to do my best to capture it here, but he is essentially arguing that it's a perilous moment for democracy. And the rest of the piece is complaining about congressional hearings and journalism. I'm not making that up. 
the uh, the attacks on democracy are coming from inside the House is essentially the argument here that there's too many congressional hearings and too much journalism. He complains about the Twitter files. He complains about congressional hearings that are probing Twitter's inappropriate behavior and inappropriate conduct over the course of the 2020 election and over the course of the pandemic. That's genuinely something he's casting as this like vast right wing conspiracy to target uh, and create victims out of people who are involved in this. And it's actually really important and worth talking about here because what you're seeing is uh, an experimentation with this new line of argument that what the tech oligarchs were, what these sort of petty bureaucratic censors were, uh, is that sort of bulwark. Uh, again, like the, this is the, they are the protectors of public safety. They were just doing their best. Everyone else that is now, as Missouri v. Biden, likely heads to the Supreme Court, and make no mistake, that's 100% why Yoel Roth is rolling this out the Monday, uh, the, the, the following week, Monday, uh, after we learned about that, um, is because he's trying to undercut the credibility of everyone that is now having, I think, success at stopping the government and tech censors from uh, interfering in elections. It's absolutely why he's doing what he's doing. And it's just a, a really pathetic argument. And I think it's one though we're gonna see more and more of. I don't know if you guys read the whole op-ed, but I do think it's just so telling that he sees democracy in the same way so many elites do. They love to celebrate democracy, but actual democracy is really upsetting to them because they don't have control over it. They fundamentally don't trust the American people. Democracy to them is actually oligarchy, uh, but they like to have that illusion of democracy where people vote, but when that vote is wrong, they, they step in. What did you guys think of this? Yeah, I mean, obviously uh, democracy is everything except what the people decide, right? Uh, and there's so many examples and I don't, I, there's so many directions to go with this. Honestly, I'm sure Ben will, will take the, the election uh, angle and warn us all about what's coming. And I, I think he'll be completely right to do so that this is going to be a mess of an election. Uh, and we are not, I think as uh, we are, we are not uh, as worried as we should be about it um, in terms of what the fallout will be, but I'll leave that to Ben and say, only that I, I, t I wrote about Yoel Roth um, when the Twitter files came out and when Twitter changed hands to to Elon Musk, um, basically casting him as an archetype of a large part of what our GDP is now. And I, I think um, we have to grapple with this, that in fact, a large part of what we're producing, um, our credential system is producing are well-paid ideological officers. Um, and this is now a function that is supported by the private sector. Um, and it's it, the idea that, and, and, and we've talked about this many times, that the structure of the way, of not only of censorship, but of many of the workings of the current regime have this, this sort of dual structure between uh, government coercion and an entire, uh, you know, and many times not even coming from directly from the CEO, but like an entire structure within private companies of all of these people who have been credentialed basically to be political officers and their job, their very well-paid job is to be political officers. Those people are creating a large part of our GDP that's simply fake. It's not adding 
it's, it's worse than fake because it's tyrannical, but it's also not actually adding to the bottom line. And I really wonder how long uh, such a thing can go on before it really starts to sink the profitability of companies. I mean, we are already seeing some encouraging signs about, you know, DEI officer uh, positions um, not, you know, not being renewed or not being filled because it's not because of, uh, you know, every CEO is is um, like Elon Musk politically, uh, but because simply that this is an enormous cost in the economy. And honestly, um, as much as, you know, I know we try to fight this from the sort of political and ideological perspective, it, it may be that the, the, to some extent in this backwards horseshoe way, we've looped back into the free market perhaps being the best um, defense we have because one of the things that's given me hope is that, you know, when when those bottom lines start tightening up and and as, as we continue to, to be in a rocky place economically, um, companies are simply dispensing with people like Yoel Roth. Um, and that, that will obviously be very, very, very important and an improvement for, for this country. Um, well, first, Emily was right to note the Missouri v. Biden development, which is that the feds are trying to push at least the preliminary injunction in that case up to the Supreme Court. And so it's more than ironic that Yoel Roth is raising these arguments the Monday after the Friday in which we found out the feds are trying to push that case to the Supreme Court. Um, ironically, in that case, what they showed, what the plaintiff showed is that there was this massive concerted effort of coercion and intimidation and browbeating and haranguing by the feds to get social media companies to censor, converting those social media companies into state censorship arms. And yet what Yoel Roth says is there's an, an a campaign, a concerted effort of coercion, intimidation, cajoling, et cetera, now to go after the censors. And they are the real bad guys here. And they are the ones who are, I guess, engaging in a conspiracy against rights or something like that. So the irony here is uh, unbelievable, but precisely what you expect. And what the real story here is, is that as he so shows the censorship industrial complex, even though he dismisses the Twitter files and doesn't even really mention Missouri v. Biden, has been wholly exposed. And the counter attack on the censors is actually winning. It's certainly winning in the courts. It's winning to extend in public opinion. The cutouts that the censorship industrial complex used to accomplish its goals are being scrutinized, and they loathe that. And so, of course, they're going to recoil to the position of it's a threat to democracy to stop censors from uh, allowing democracy to actually work and having free and open discourse of ideas. Now we have to attack them. That is clearly the strategy that they have to work with. And their strategy is essentially, we are the victims, actually. The censors are the victims, not the people who are combating the censorship in defense of those who have been censored and actually victimized here. Um, you know, last point I'd make is, uh, obviously, we could talk about the criminalization of uh, election speech that you can see in these indictments and draw a nexus probably to social media censorship around if you say something about elections that could somehow impact voting patterns, that thus you've engaged in a conspiracy to violate people's rights and you can imagine people being prosecuted for that wrong thing because frankly it's already started but it's also i think another aspect of this that yoel roth is laying out is look those engaged in the censorship industrial complex are now being attacked for being exposed and watch the feds try to use that themselves in their arguments in defense of this regime as they try to take it to the Supreme Court, just like, by the way, in an analogous situation, Jack Smith and the feds are arguing, well, Trump has to be gagged because people are being threatened because Trump says things. 
uh, in a in a judicial context. Uh, I don't have a whole lot to add here. We're running low on time for this segment, so I mean, I will just very briefly note that there you can't possibly say enough about the. I mean, irony would be a too polite way to say it, the dripping from the veins hypocrisy of when these people have the gall to talk about democracy. I mean, whether it is in the big tech censorship context, whether it is in really any other context there. I mean, I, I, in Israel, they've, they're ha- they've been having this judicial reform debate. The the Israeli Supreme Court just last Tuesday, they, they convened all 15 justices for the first time in the history of that court. It's normally less than the full 15 panel to hear an appeal about this extraordinarily mild, moderate law, which basically says that the court cannot strike down a cabinet-level appointment for being unreasonable. And, um, you know, it's called anti-democratic, obviously, is it's unelected. But I mean, the whole thing is just such a mess. I mean, like, like you just cannot say enough about the, the hypocrisy of these deeply, deeply anti-democratic people who invariably are just mini tyrants and little Robespierre's themselves. All right, Inez, talk to us about Russell Brand. Yeah, I mean, I'm not someone who cares overly much about Russell Brand, but I do think this case is worth discussing um, for really three reasons. So just in terms of the factual background, uh, there there have been, there's been essentially an expose long time in coming about in which a, quite long list of women from Russell Brand's uh, self-admitted uh, wild past come forward and say that their encounters were of varying levels, uh, non-consensual. Um, it, the reporting mixes a couple serious charges with a, a bunch of non-criminal and unserious charges um, in, in a intentionally confusing way. But there are really three points um, that I think are relevant here to the broader picture. Um, one is is the timing in politics. Um, Russell Brand famously lived this way for a long time. He was like, I don't, can't remember what award they gave him, like the man who's shagged the most women in the UK award or something, right? So they they were cheering this. Um, the media was cheering him in, in uh, living his life this way until he decided to stop living his life this way and start criticizing the left. He's not a conservative, but he has criticized some cultural uh, ticks of the left, um, and that has put him in the crosshair. So the, the, the media timing of this is incredibly suspicious, given the fact that all of these allegations are from sometimes decades ago. Uh, which again makes the, the the truth or falsity of them very very difficult to adjudicate, just as in the Kavanaugh case. Um, but I think it's worth noting this is the first big political, I think, way of weaponizing uh, or, or incident of these Me Too allegations being weaponized since the Kavanaugh hearings. Um, obviously, Russell Brand is a celebrity, not you know a Supreme Court justice or nominee, right? But um, but in it, the the timing of this seems explicitly political. And in that way, I would compare it more to what happened to Joshua Katz, right, um, where where uh, he, he was having affairs with students, apparently. Um, but people knew this before, and they did nothing about it. And it's, he's hardly the first, you know, professor to have uh, sexual relationships with his students. It's pretty – it's so common. It's an archetype, right? Um but but they they weaponized it against him for a political purpose because he was politically uh, stepping out of line in the university. This has the same sort of feel to it. Um, the second important point, of course, is the standard of accusation, right? Um, the, the mere accusation is enough um, to completely ruin someone's life. Uh, it doesn't require further proof. Um, and that's just a reminder that that 
you know, I know this sounds very 2017, 2018, but but this uh, tool in the toolbox and the political toolbox has not gone away. Um, and it is still being wielded uh, to, to destroy people's reputations and their lives um, in a way that's not really that flips the the standard of innocence on your head, right? If you you have accusations like this in public, you are now in the position of having to prove yourself innocent. Um, another, uh, I think, good comparable case is, is Joseph Massey, um, who had a, a very uh, tumultuous and mutually tumultuous and immiserating uh, relationship with a woman. But in order to defend himself from untu- untrue charges uh, that were leveled against him, he had to kind of you know, stripped down in public, right? Emotionally stripped down in public. Uh, he had to talk about all of his, you know, psychological sort of uh, his his past of abuse, like uh, in his family, like his all his psychological problems, everything, you know. And, and I think that the the that itself can be the punishment um, that is enough to deter people from, you know, saying the wrong thing politically. Um, and and third, you know, the messiness of these situations themselves. Um, I I. I thought that this era was sort of coming to a close this called girl boss feminist era culturally was sort of coming to a close and that even the left was starting to admit that there were were serious problems with this this kind of framework but we seem to be cycling back uh, with this case into a framework where consent um, is both treated as a a simple matter and as the only lodestar for uh, appropriate sexual behavior. It, it cannot carry either one of those burdens, in my view. Um, it's not enough. Consent is not enough to distinguish between uh, the good and the degrading in the sexual, right? Um, and and or the violative. Uh, consent is not functional. Um, as it is not, it just isn't a concept that is is uh, capable of doing that. And when it's stretched to to try to encompass w- what it is that is good or bad sex, it becomes tyrannical. Um, and two, it's not as simple as people imagine, um, except in in the most obvious cases, right? We all know like forcible rape, right? Um, is is obviously a lack of consent, but the the, the model of consent doesn't allow for women um, to be uncertain about their own. Uh, their own consent or granting functions, which is very, very much part of the natural sexual dynamic between men and women, that men push and women sort of uh, say no until they say yes. And there's there's no recognition of that natural dynamic in human sexuality. But in fact, that's almost always what's, what's at play in these cases, whether the men push too far or not, whether they behaved appropriately or not, whether they behave criminally or not, um, oftentimes this dynamic is at play. And it's a dynamic that the left is not even capable of talking about because they don't acknowledge, um, you know, differences, both physical and psychological between men and women and and our different evolutionary drives and so on. So um, anyway, this is not a resurgence I'm happy to see uh, in terms of, of, you know, I thought this was sort of buried by 2018 that Me Too had become a a joke and an afterthought in the culture. But uh, apparently this is still not only still alive, but is still a, a potent weapon to be used with impeccable political timing. Um, and with that, I'll throw it out to to the rest of the view to discuss whether that's um, whether this is a workable standard, where such accusations are going to go. How actually, here's an important question. I think how we should treat these kinds of obviously timed accusations from the media. Um, how you know, obviously, nobody on this podcast is going to take the believe all women standard. But what should the standard of the public now be towards these very conveniently timed accusations? Well, I think that's the tough thing. I mean, I don't know that. 
I, I actually feel like the the Me Too fervor like definitely died down. And I don't know that this is indicative of a pattern that's going to expand, thankfully. Uh, maybe I'll be wrong. Um, I think Russell Brand is super unique in that he's a creature of the left who's become a critic of the left and has this sort of heterodox Bernie bro audience um, that sort of brings in also like MAGA people and, and centrists. Um, but, I, you know, his story is so critically I think based on the fact that he used to live this insane life, like that is central to what Russell Brand is now is that he's open about how disgusting his life used to be essentially. Um, so there's just nothing surprising about the fact that, you know, he, he may have done things that were inappropriate and much worse than that potentially. And so I don't think this fundamentally changes anybody's opinion of, of Russell Brand unless it had happened like yesterday or a month ago, or a year ago, um, which most of these haven't. And I also don't think anybody is uh, looking at Russell Brand as a moral paragon. They're looking at him as someone who's like an entertaining political commentator, um, you know, not a senator from the moral majority or their pastor. So I, I just like, I think, you know, people should always weigh the political factors, um, you know, involved in this. I think the new thing that I've seen the left talking about with Russell Brand is that he intentionally cultivated an audience that would be skeptical of Me Too accusations because he knew since 2017 that the allegations were going to at some point come out. Um, and so he was like building this empire specifically to shield himself from Me Too. I don't believe that. Um, I, you know, I think if anything, it's probably me too radicalize a lot of men against the left. And that's incidental. These things are sort of connected, but not intentional. Um, but I'll, let's, the women have had their say now for the men. Well, unfortunately, I mean, the standard uh, is obviously neither believe all women or believe no women. I mean, by definition, this is like a, a, a fact specific thing. We obviously should be incredibly skeptical when you have, I mean, these, these news stories or allegations that come up, you know, years, decades later. I mean, you know, I mean, Trump is dealing with some of this himself, right? I mean, like one of these many, but one of these lesser discussed legal dramas that he allegedly like groped someone in like a department store off Fifth Avenue 25 years ago. I mean, uh, you know, give me a break. I mean, he's dealing with enough as it is, right? Um, I, 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 oh crap, I was gonna, I was, was going to say something else, but I lost my train of thought actually. Um, so Ben, maybe if you want to kind of take over. Yeah, I mean, there are obviously a lot of different angles to this. Uh, it was notable Glenn Greenwald pointed this out that the. New York Times kind of framed this as you know, Russell Brand, who's built his empire, uh, interviewing conservatives like that's that's how he's risen, uh, as opposed to his interesting and heterodox views and critiques of individuals and willingness to talk to people who are outside the left liberal bubble. Um, obviously, you know, who gets attacked and at what point and on what grounds or how you have to judge all these cases, I think, by the way. The notion that we don't believe everyone or disbelieve everyone, obviously, that is the way that we should be rendering judgment in society. You look at the facts and then you evaluate. But I, I don't think that that is certainly where the left wants society. I mean, we are pushing into a time where it's very hard to imagine, like in the context of a jury, for example, in a politically charged case, that people are going to look at things and try to render judgment fairly and dispassionately. It, it's like we are in a post uh, actually look at things objectively and render judgment in that sort of 
independent, neutral kind of way era. And I think it's clear in everyday life we see, you know, that in a court context, there's you're kind of operating under the threat of mob rule, depending upon what the case is, if it's a politically charged one. Um, so, you know, as for this particular one, um, I hadn't heard about those conspiracy theories about he's building this empire to insulate himself. But uh, that's even more conspiratorial than I would normally go in terms of thinking through one of these scenarios. Uh, but it is notable, obviously, that he's being attacked on these grounds when he's reached this point of his his heights and powers and when he's been kind of an open book about his misconduct or perhaps worse in the past. But I think, again, this is a signal to any, anyone who is heterodox, anyone who dares descend from prevailing orthodoxy, you're going to face at very minimum process that is punishment. And maybe it's merited in this case, uh, but would it have ever arisen? had he not taken the positions that he's taken or interviewed the people that he's people. And I think it's obvious, probably not. And that puts us in a very sad and disturbing kind of society and something of a death spiral, quite frankly, when kind of the politics of assassinating people personally becomes the norm and it's everywhere and it continues to grow and grow. All right. You know what time it is? It's time for final thoughts. Josh, what have you got for us? Well, fortunate as the case may be, Emily, I actually just remember what I had a, a brain fart on just like a minute or two ago, which was I wanted to kind of elaborate on a very profound point that Inez just made that I think deserves to be highlighted a little more, which is this idea that consent is not the end-all, be-all paradigm. And we know that, th that this is the case when it comes to the power dynamics of hookup culture and male-female relations and all that more generally, but you know, consent is really kind of the sine qua non of the liberal worldview properly construed in the first place, right? I mean, if you take kind of classical liberals, left liberals, right liberals, libertarians, if you take all of them at their word, then consent really should dictate anything. I mean, if someone just consents to to be a prostitute, if someone just consents to do fentanyl, whatever, then, uh, you know, shrug your shoulders, no big deal here. But I mean, this is obviously a this is a a, a deeply, deeply watered down, amoral, and, and ultimately untenable and unsustainable worldview. And it, it's not a direct analogy. I mean, we're talking about consent in in a very specific context here. And we're talking about Russell Brand and kind of Me Too culture and all of that. So it's not a direct kind of side by side analogy. And one might say that you can have consent here and not consent there. And I'm not, I'm trying not to paint with broad brushes here. I'm merely trying to say that I, I get really, really frustrated when just in general and kind of a social, cultural, political, even kind of a, a legal context when people try to make out consent to, to really be all that matters. I mean, some, some things are just wrong for the sake of being wrong and legislation, the law should frankly just say as such. I mean, obviously, obviously consent should, you know, if someone consents to be murdered, I mean, what does that even mean, right? I mean, that's kind of a silly example, I understand, but um, the whole thing just ultimately collapses on its head. So I, I, I was really grateful that you made that point, Inez, and I just wanted to underscore that. Well, I'll, I'll follow up on that um, some more as well, because like like you, Josh, I think it it is um, it's a framework. It is the ultimate framework in kind of uh, the, the liberal world in, in which we float. Um, and it dispenses with the very obvious uh, idea philosophically that people can consent or want things that are bad for them. Right. Um, and, and this sounds like so obvious as to not even be worth saying, uh, but it's actually it is remarkable how little people on the left and then even some people on the right are unable to just state this directly because they have relied um, 
so strongly on the idea that people's revealed preferences are add up to a positive society, right? Um, that that they, they've completely dispensed with the very basic concept that human desires can be either wisely or well-directed and shaped uh, by education, by culture, by law, right, uh, towards good ends, um, or they can be impulses that actually enslave us, right? That This is a very basic, you know, philosophical idea for 4,000 years. And yet it's something that if I say out loud, sounds wildly reactionary in today's culture, because we're so used to this baseline standard in the way that we talk about politics, you know, culture, life, personal decisions, anything else, where it's, you know, oh, I'm, it's all about discovering who you are and what you want. And then uh, the world is tyrannical if it doesn't, you know, follow through and give you those things. Um, this is exactly opposite to you know, the understanding of the good life uh, and, and human flourishing, not just in, you know, the Christian tradition or the Jewish tradition, but in virtually any successful, you know, human philosophical tradition until uh, uh, the equivalent of a few seconds ago. Um, and, and I think it's a, a decision or a transition that we don't think about because we literally swim in it all day long, but it's it's clearly and fundamentally wrong. Well, on a totally different matter and very briefly, uh, there's been a development in the Senate of a change in dress code to accommodate Senator John Fetterman. And I just want to say that to the extent we're going to have hoodie clad uh, and sweatsuit wearing members of the U.S. Senate, uh, if there wasn't a signal before that the West was dead, this is the signal. That's it. That's all I got today. I mean, I think that's um... Uh, let's say appropriately pithy uh, because it does feel just like a, a kick in the gut, even though uh, I'm someone who is so opposed and annoyed by the snobbery. Um, Inez probably is one of these snobs, uh, the sartorial snobbery about airports and blah. Oh my gosh, give me a break. But the Senate, I like I can write it. I can ride an airplane in jeans. I can ride an airplane in tennis shoes. I should not be legislating for the country in jeans and tennis shoes. And uh, John Fetterman also, let's remember, is a LARP. He is not your actual, like, back before Carhartt was hipster, uh, he's not, you know, just getting off the construction site and wearing Carhartt because it allows him maximum flexibility uh, while welding. No, he's wearing it because he likes to LARP. Um, he's a rich kid who has been taken care of his entire life, went to Harvard, and uh, maybe he understands and he's at least smart enough to grasp the aesthetic of the working class, but it certainly uh, is, is not native to John Fetterman uh, in any way whatsoever. So it's just it's disturbing on so many different levels. Um, and, and, you know, back to the, my original final thought, cause I didn't know Ben was going to drop that and fantastic that he did. My original final thought was going to be back to, uh, Russell Brand and just that, like, it, it's just impossible for anybody to know what to believe. Like the, the waters have been so muddied. Um, me too was a huge muddying of the water you had, as Inez said in the beginning of her segment, like legitimate claims being lumped in. 
with ones that were just borderline at best and personal non-public uh, involved in all of that. So there, just from the perspective of a journalist, there's always questions about whether something is newsworthy. There are always you know, questions about sourcing and motivations and all of that. And these are questions members of the public now have to ask when they read journalism because the journalists aren't answering them with any clarity or sort of like moral uh, grounding themselves. It's just sort of, we feel like this is really bad and, but you guys decide. So it's just, it's one of those things where like, I don't know, like did Russell Brand intentionally for years build a talk show because he knew Me Too allegations were going to come out one day? No, what was more likely that happened is like many men uh, who, you know, enjoy the commentary of Jordan Peterson or Dave Rubin or so, it, all of these different people who offer something different from what the so-called mainstream is offering them. Um, he probably did see Me Too and think, wow, this means that, you know, things I've apologized for and repented for from years in my past uh, might be coming to get me. And I'm not going to build this talk show as a shield. I'm actually just like really upset by this. I think it's wrong <laughs> and like I want to talk about it. So uh, I think it's it's to the less detriment to think conspiratorial about, conspiratorially about these things instead of understanding how these things are affecting um, men and, and women and everyone. So on that note, um, we, we did Fetterman, we did Russell Brand. Uh, we did, we, we did, did Emily needing to dress better at airports. Yes. Goodness. Uh, I knew you were on the other side of that. How did I know? How did I know? <laughs> Coastal elite. <laughs> Your name is Inez. All right. Well, on behalf of Josh, Ben and Inez, thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Emily Jashinsky and we'll see you at the next NatCon squad.